passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Our culture loves a good scandal. We may not admit it on the outside. We may say that we are disgusted with the train wrecks that people make of their lives. But the reality is, like a car crash that slows down both sides of the interstate, sometimes we just can't look away. Proverbs 18.8, Solomon describes something I think it's so correct of our view of scandals. He says this, The word of a whisper is like delicious morsels that go down into the inner parts of the body. Scandals and gossip about those scandals, like delicious morsels that our wicked souls really just can't get enough of. But have you ever considered a definition of the word scandal? One dictionary describes it as this. It is an action or an event that is regarded as morally or legally wrong and causes general public outrage. It's a pretty broad definition. I think it's a pretty appropriate definition. Uh, Our modern day scandals all the way from Watergate to Deflategate would fit into that definition of a scandal. But have you ever considered how scandalous grace is? Just think about that for a second. What is more morally outrageous than the wicked being pronounced innocent? What is more indignant, causes us to be more indignant than the innocent taking the place of the wicked? From the beginning to the end of the Bible, grace is scandalous. It is something that doesn't make sense to our minds. It is completely scandalous for the sinner to be offered the hand of friendship of the righteous king. It is completely scandalous for the rebel to be welcomed home after rebelling against God as a son or daughter. It is completely scandalous that those who are far from God do not have to do penance to earn God's favor, but are freely given his inheritance if they would just believe in his son. Grace is scandalous. And that's really what we see in this morning's text. This morning we begin a new section of the book of Genesis. We're no longer following the life of Abraham. That finished last week. And now we're beginning to look at his descendants. Most notably, we're going to be looking at his grandson, Jacob, for uh, several weeks here. As we encounter Jacob, we encounter his family and his brother specifically, Esau, we're going to see a lot of their faults. As we encounter Isaac and Rebekah, even though they are godly parents, we can ask ourselves, as they keep screwing up, as we see all of their flaws so clearly, we should ask this question. Who is worthy to receive the promise that God made to Abraham? Who is worthy to receive the promise of inheritance that God had given to Abraham? As we study this passage, we're going to see it's a pretty difficult question to answer. On the surface, we're going to see that both Isaac and Rebekah, both Jacob and Esau, really aren't worthy of grace. And that's really what makes grace so scandalous. It's because none is worthy of it. In fact, if you were to sum up this morning's text in just one sentence, I think you could describe it this way. Salvation testifies to God's goodness and humanity's unworthiness. 
Salvation testifies to God's goodness as well as to humanity's unworthiness. Really, the story of Jacob and Esau is the story of each and every one of us. It magnifies the goodness of God and it highlights our unworthiness in his presence. Salvation is a testament to God's goodness and humanity's unworthiness. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 25. We're going to be studying uh, verses 19 through 34. This is a story that's really told in two parts, or two acts, if you will. The first tells us the birth of Isaac, or excuse me, of Jacob and Esau. And then later on, it tells us of a pivotal moment in their lives decades later. As we approach God's word, please pray with me. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. And we thank you that even when it is difficult to understand and to comprehend, that it is good. God, I pray that as we approach a passage that can be somewhat controversial, a passage that can be difficult for us to understand, I pray that you would come and that you would speak to us. You would soften our hearts to the truth of your holy word. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As I mentioned, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 25. Please follow along as I start in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. As we begin this section, we see a changing of the guard takes place. And I want to test our memories real briefly here at the beginning. A long time ago, as we were just beginning our journey through the book of Genesis, we encountered a phrase. And I mentioned then, in Genesis chapter 2, that this phrase would come back over and over again throughout the book of Genesis. And it is this phrase, These are the generations of... See, every time you see that phrase, these are the generations of, you can know that a a new section of Genesis is about to begin or is starting at that moment. This phrase, these are the generations of, is found ten times throughout the book of Genesis. And every single time, it signals that a new section, a new story, a new chapter of Israel's history and really of our salvation's history is beginning at that moment. But what's interesting about this phrase, these are the generations of, is that the story that comes afterwards doesn't talk about the person who is mentioned there. It talks about their offspring. So when we encountered Abraham, his story began in Genesis chapter 11 with this phrase, these are the generations of Terah, Terah being Abraham's uh, father. Now, as we turn to this chapter and this story in Genesis, we see that it says these are the generations of Isaac. We can know that this is now focusing on the lives of Isaac's children, specifically of Jacob. Now, we're going to be, in large part, skipping over the life of, of Isaac, that's because that's what Genesis does. And that's not because Genesis looks at Isaac as an unimportant figure. It's not because Genesis looks at Isaac as a man of weak faith. It's, it's simply telling the story of salvation. Remember, Genesis is not written for, uh, to, to satisfy our curiosity of all of human history. The book of Genesis is written primarily to tell us about the origins of salvation. That's why so much time is spent on Abraham's life. 
because he is the first one that God calls to follow him. That's why so much time is spent on the life of Jacob, Jacob being the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And later, that's why so much time is spent on Joseph in Egypt, because the book of Genesis starts, or or rather is finished and written right after the people of Israel come out of Egypt. This is a book about the origins of our salvation. And so as we turn our attention to Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, I think it'd be wise for us to spend some time looking and comparing Jacob as he is introduced in Genesis and Abraham as he was introduced in Genesis just a few chapters earlier. When Abraham first comes on the scene in Genesis, we see that Abraham is a man of faith. In fact, if you were to learn one thing from the life of Abraham, it is what it means to be obedient in your faith. God calls him to follow, and he does so without question. He journeys forth on faith, not by sight, for the hope of the promise that God has given to him. The life of Abraham, especially at the beginning of his life, is a beautiful picture of faith, and obedience, and really it's something that we should try to emulate in our own lives as well. But when we encounter Jacob, that's not the case at all. Jacob is a schemer. Jacob takes advantage of his brother. He deceives his father. In short, Jacob is a fiend. Rather than being a man of faith, he is a man of deceit. What can we learn from Jacob as we open the chapter here? I think we can learn a lot about God's grace. See, God chooses to use Jacob anyway in spite of his own deceitfulness, in spite of his own wickedness, in spite of his schemes. God chooses to use him anyway. If the life of Abraham teaches us about faith, teaches us about obedience, then the life of Jacob teaches us what grace is. It teaches us that God's grace is scandalous, that it is relentless, and it will not be thwarted by the wickedness of one man. God's grace endures and continues for Jacob. See, God has a plan to save all of humanity, and that plan will be fulfilled. It doesn't matter how much scheming we see from Jacob. It doesn't matter how much deceit, how much manipulation we see on his part. God's purposes will not fail. God's grace endures for Jacob. And I think that's good news for us. See, it's good news for us because if God's grace overshadows Jacob's own faults and failures, then it also can overshadow ours as well that God can offer that same sort of grace to cover our faults, to cover our blemishes as well. Friends, the life of Abraham calls us to faith and obedience, but the life of Jacob calls us to rejoice in the grace that God has for people like you and people like me that is offered at the cross. Of course, as we open up Genesis chapter 25, we see that Jacob isn't on the scene yet. Isaac and Rebekah are faced with the same struggle as Abraham and Sarah were 100 years earlier. Infertility. Just imagine the confusion that is taking place in this family right now. God had promised Abraham that he would have a great nation. That this great nation would be found through Isaac. 
In Genesis chapter 24, God providentially provides a wife for, for Isaac. It seems like God in every single way is orchestrating everything for his promise to be fulfilled. But then nothing. Isaac and Rebekah are barren. Just before this section in Genesis chapter 25, we see that Ishmael has many sons. But the chosen one is barren. Did Abraham's family make a mistake? Was Isaac really the chosen one? Was Rebekah really the one he was supposed to marry? Years of infertility cast shadows of doubt on the confidence that they once had in God's plan and in God's purposes for their lives. They cast doubt, but not for Isaac, apparently. Isaac had heard the stories of his own miraculous birth. He had seen time and time again how God had provided for his father and for his mother and for his family. And so he simply prays. Don't jump over verse 21. It is a simple and yet profound verse. Isaac prayed for his wife. You see, in ancient times, men would begin having children at age 20. If you didn't have any children by age 25, then you were considered to be cursed. Isaac did not have any children when he was 40 and he was first married. And so it makes a lot of sense that as he gets married at age 40, they're going to get started on trying to have a family right away. But the text tells us that Jacob and Esau are not born until Isaac is 60. For 20 long years, Isaac and Rebekah waited for God to provide a child for them. If you look at verse 21 and think that Isaac prayed once and God answered, think again. Isaac prayed for 10, 15, 20 years for God to provide a child. Who knows how many times he was tempted to give up. Who knows how many times he thought that he might have been doing something wrong in God's eyes. And yet through it all, he followed the example of his father Abraham, continuing faithfully in prayer. Each and every day praying to God, confident that God would fulfill his promises. Maybe you can relate with that. Maybe you can relate with Isaac and Rebekah having prayed for years and years, and it seems like there is nothing but silence from God in answer to your prayers. I pray that this short verse that speaks of Isaac and Rebekah, I pray that it would be an encouragement to you. That through all your doubts, through all of your despair, that you would not give up, that you would know that God is faithful and that God just may answer your prayer after decades of work. Let the barrenness of Isaac, the barrenness of Rebecca, remind you of how dependent we are upon God for anything and everything. And if the great promise of a nation were to come true for Abraham and Isaac, then it would be solely God's doing. And in your own life, if what you have prayed for is to come to pass, only God will be the one who provides. Persevere in prayer. That's exactly what 
Isaac does. After 20 long years of praying, Rebecca is finally pregnant. And many women, not certainly not all women, but many women find pregnancy to be a wonderful time. They enjoy the feeling of pregnancy, but that is not at all the case for Rebecca here. Let's pick up in verse 20, 22. It says this, the children struggled together within her and she said, if it is thus, why is it happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The older, the one shall be stronger than the younger, but the older shall serve the younger. This translation, and most English translations, don't do justice to this phrase, struggled together. What's really being described here is almost like a war zone. It literally says, They crushed one another in her womb. The kicks that she felt during pregnancy were not God's gentle signs of showing that he was at work through a miracle of birth within her. They were signs of a struggle within her. They were painful. And as she suffered, it tore her up on the inside as her two children crashed into one another, vying for survival against one another. Just imagine how difficult and how bad things may have been or must have been for Rebecca, the woman who had prayed for decades to have a child, to say it would be better for me to have never been pregnant than to experience the trauma of what I am experiencing right now. And so she seeks an answer for her pain, and so God gives her an answer, says that she has twins. The strife that she is experiencing right now within her is symbolic of the strife that is to come. But she receives more than just a prophecy that she is having twins. More than just a prophecy of the fact that the strife that will one day exist between these two. She receives prophecy that contrary to cultural tradition, the younger will be the chosen one and not the older one. The promise that God has made to Abraham and now to Isaac, will not be accomplished through the older one. It will be accomplished through the younger, contrary to what everyone would have expected. See, it's important for us to understand how God works. God, even though it is unpopular, God sometimes chooses someone like Jacob over someone like Esau. Paul describes what's taking place here in Romans chapter 9 when he says this, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God chose Jacob. But why? Why did God choose Jacob? Well, Paul is clear here in Romans. It's not because Jacob chose God. He was in the womb. He also makes it clear that it's not because Jacob performed many good deeds. God chose them, chose him while he was in the womb. We call this the doctrine of election. Somehow, some way, God chooses some to respond to the gospel. For some of us, that might be difficult for us to swallow. 
might bring up images of God being unfair or the fact that we don't have free will if we believe in the doctrine of election. But that's not true at all. See, in a few minutes, we're going to take a look at Esau and at his life, and we're going to see that Esau isn't chosen, but he doesn't really seem overly concerned that he isn't chosen. He doesn't seem too concerned that he has not been chosen to continue the promise. He sacrifices his birthright. He sells his inheritance. He gives up the promise of salvation. Esau is not condemned because he's not chosen. Esau is condemned because of his actions. You see, when we understand election, which this passage is teaching us about, it doesn't lead us to anger. It doesn't lead us to being mad that God doesn't allow free will because he does. Instead, it leads us to worship. It leads us to worship because it is humbling to realize that God didn't have to choose anyone. The question is not, why didn't God choose Esau? The question is, why did God choose Jacob? Why did God choose anyone? He would have been perfectly and utterly justified in choosing no one. By choosing anyone, by preserving a small remnant, it is a testament to his scandalous grace. Something that is morally abhorrent to us at first glance, that the wicked would be chosen. It is a scandal of grace. Paul continues by describing why this election is so glorious. He puts the work of salvation from the beginning until the end completely and solely in God's hands. I want you to imagine three scenarios with me. In each scenario, you are in a burning building. You are trapped inside on the third floor. In the first scenario, a firefighter comes to your rescue, but they can only make it to the second floor. If you are going to be saved, if you're going to be spared the flame, then you have to make it to the second floor on your own. A second example, you are in a building that is on fire. You are trapped inside on the third floor. The firefighter comes to you, and he finds you on the third floor, and he opens up his arms to you. And he holds his arms open and just waits, waiting for you to crawl into his arms. And a third example. You are in a building that is on fire. You are trapped inside on the third floor. But unlike the first two examples, things are a lot more serious than you just being trapped inside. The firefighter comes to you on the third floor and he finds you lying there unconscious. Is the firefighter going to wake you up and then hold open his arms and ask you to jump into his arms? Of course not. He's going to pick you up, even while you are unconscious, and bring you out of the burning building. Luke, or Zach, would you mind throwing up Romans 9 again on here? Uh, I just want us to look at this passage again. As you look at this passage, which of these three scenarios is Paul describing here? Is Paul describing a scenario where you have to go to the second floor? Is Paul describing a scenario where you have to jump into the firefighter's arms? Or is Paul describing a scenario where you are lying unconscious on the floor and God saves you anyway? It seems like he's describing the third. That Paul is saying that God has chosen you so that the entirety of your salvation rests solely on him. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says that we are dead in our sins. 
The reality is, as hard as it is for us to, to recognize, is that dead people don't do a good job of choosing to come back to life. God brings them back to life. John, in the book of John, Jesus says that those who come to him have only come to him, who have only chosen him because his father has chosen them in the first place. The Bible testifies to God's election. Paul's entire argument here, Genesis chapter 25, the entire Bible, point us to this truth that God is the sole author of our salvation. The Father is the one who chooses us. The Son is the one who saves us. And the Holy Spirit is the one who seals us. And that leads us to worshiping God and worshiping Him alone. You see, in those first two examples, salvation somewhat relies on you. Even if it is just as simple as climbing into His arms, salvation somewhat rests on you. And that's why God chooses Jacob. If God were going to wait for Jacob or Esau to choose him, he would have been left waiting for a very, very, very long time. We may not like it. We may wish that the Bible said something different about election. But in order for us to be faithful to this text, we have to take this truth seriously. That God's purposes will not fail. And God, in his infinite wisdom, chooses some including Jacob, before he is born. Of course, we don't have to wait long to see this prophecy. We don't have to wait long for it to see it come true. This story continues with the birth of twins. Let's pick up in verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in his tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You see, when labor comes... When Rebecca enters into labor, she does indeed have twins. And the first one comes out, he's extremely hairy, covered in red hair. And so they they come up with the extremely original name. They decide to name him Harry. That's what Esau literally means. They named him Harry. The second one comes out, he's a little smaller. He's a little weaker. And he comes out clutching his brother's heel. And so they name him Jacob, which carries a double meaning. In one sense, it carries the meaning of God protects It's probably a reference to the fact that God has protected him in the womb with his brother who is bigger and stronger than him. But also at the same time, it sounds like the word heal, yakeb in Hebrew. And that is emphasized here. The phrase heal carries a connotation of a trickster, of a deceiver. And that really sums up Jacob quite well here. You see these two boys grow up and the characteristics that we see at birth, one being hairy, the other one being a trickster, more and more exemplify them. Esau is indeed an outdoorsman. He's a hunter and he's a good one. He would go off on his own for weeks at a time living on the land. He was a man's man. Jacob, on the other hand, was more domesticated. We don't really know for sure what that means 
but it seems to mean that he was a shepherd of domesticated livestock. Rather than being an outdoorsman who would go off on his own for weeks at a time, Jacob would work outside, but he would always be able to return home at the end of the day. Always be able to return home to his bed and his tent. These two couldn't be more different. They couldn't, they would have had a broken relationship uh, from the start without anyone's help, but Isaac and Rebecca seem to make things worse by playing favorites. This reminds us as they play favorites that even the most godly are flawed. Even those who have been following God for decades are flawed, can make poor parenting choices that affect their children. In our own lives, that should keep us humble. No matter how long we have been following God, that we have been living our lives for God, we can still have blind spots. We can still make poor choices. But at the same time, we can be relieved that God uses broken and warped people like Rebecca and Isaac and Jacob and you and me to accomplish his purposes. And so as we continue this story, as we look at the second act, we stand at a crossroads. We see this strife between Jacob and between Esau. We see that it's played out over their entire lives. And we come to a point, decades later, where we see this all come to a head. Pick up in verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Right here, we catch a glimpse of Esau's problem. Esau's problem is not that he favored the outdoors. There's nothing wrong with that. His problem was not that he was rough-looking. Indeed, the same word that is used at his birth to describe this red hair that covers his body is only used one other time in Scripture. And it's used to describe a certain shepherd named David. It isn't because he looks rough. His problem is... It's his priorities. His problem is his priorities. He lives in the now. If he has an itch, he will scratch it. If he has a hunger, he will satisfy it. He does not consider the long-term ramifications of his choices. He can't be bothered with things that live on the horizon. That is Esau's problem, and that is exactly what Jacob knows. And so Jacob waits He waits and waits to take advantage of his brother's short-sightedness. You see, in ancient times, the inheritance was split among children unevenly. The first and oldest son was given a double portion compared to the rest of the children. And Jacob is clearly bitter here that he missed out on what would have been the equivalent of millions of dollars by just a few minutes by being born second. And so one day he is cooking stew when Esau arrives from the field. His inability to think beyond the moment is just emphasized by the language that is used here. Literally what Esau says to his brother is this. Let me gulp down some of that red stuff. 
You can't even be bothered with calling it stew. Let me gulp down some of that red stuff. Shakespeare would have been so proud of his eloquence. Not only is he rough in what he describes and only focused on the moment, he exaggerates his temporary hunger. He makes it something that will end in his death if he doesn't satisfy it. It needs to be taken care of right now. And so he claims that he will die if he doesn't have food. The truth is Esau is a fool. He trades away millions of dollars worth of inheritance away for some olive garden. He trades it away for a loaf of bread and a short, a small bowl of stew. He has been blinded by his present day urges that he sacrifices his future inheritance for something that only lasts him for a few hours. How often do we do the same? How often do we do the same thing as Esau? How often do we make decisions that only will take into account the moment and our urges and what we think are our needs in that moment? How often do we sacrifice or forsake our inheritance for momentary pleasure of one more drink, of a quick look, of a satisfying outburst of unrighteous anger? Many of you are familiar with missionary Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott once famously said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But the, tr- the opposite is true as well. There is no greater fool than one who sacrifices the eternal for the temporary. There is no greater fool than the one who sacrifices the eternal for the temporary. Making decisions based off of the future and keeping eternity in perspective, that's not just radical as we sometimes think. It's just smart. It's not being foolish. It's having a good head on your shoulders, recognizing that things won't matter in the long run to not have a temporary perspective. You see, Esau should have known better. Esau had heard time and time again from Isaac about how God had promised his grandfather Abraham great things. He had heard it countless times. Indeed, for the first 15 years of Esau's life, Abraham was still alive. And Abraham undoubtedly told him himself. Esau should have longed for his birthright. Esau should have longed for his inheritance. He should have lived in such a way that the promise would continue through his own line. But instead, he despised it. He despised any chance of salvation continuing through his life and through his line. He despised it with his actions. He didn't see it of any value, and so he gave it away. And then once he gave it away and realized what he had done, he despised it even more, regretting his actions. Esau is a fool. And all too often, I think we have a little too much Esau in our own hearts. It's a lot easier to live in the moment than to keep things in the perspective of eternity, to keep things in perspective of our own inheritance, of our own birthright that God has given to us. So where do we go from here? 
Where do we go as we look at this passage? I already mentioned that this is a passage that clearly tells us salvation testifies to God's goodness and humanity's own unworthiness. And I think it does so in three ways. First, it reminds us that no one is worthy of salvation. No one is worthy of salvation. If you look at the lives of Jacob and Esau, if you look at their actions of a man who lived only for the moment, and Jacob, the man who was such a jerk that he took advantage of his brother, stealing millions of dollars from him. If you look at these two, who is more worthy of God's blessing? The reality is neither is worthy. Esau rejects God by not wanting anything to do with him. Jacob rejects God by only wanting his blessings and not God himself. Be wary of this lesson. None of us is worthy of salvation. Neither Esau or Jacob were worthy of being included in God's own story. And no matter how many times or how much they might have cleaned their lives up, no matter how much we may clean our lives up, no matter how much Christian things that we may do each and every day, none of us is worthy of salvation. None none of us is worthy of grace. That's why it's called grace after all. If we want what we are Uh, what we are worthy of, then we will be paid our own wages. And Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. Our first truth from this passage is none of us is worthy of salvation. Second important truth for us is this, that God extends grace. And the fact that he extends grace is simply astounding. The fact that God extends grace to anyone is simply astounding. You see, this passage talks a lot about election. We, we talked a lot about election earlier, just earlier in this sermon. It may have been difficult for you to hear. You may think that God is being arbitrary, that God is being capricious. But really, that points to how gracious God is. You want to know what makes grace amazing? Grace is amazing that it is offered to anyone at all. That God offers grace to anyone It is amazing that any are raised to life of those who are dead. Salvation is offered to us, and that is an eternal testament of God's goodness and God's grace for us. It is truly a scandal that grace is offered to any of us, that God would pass over any of my sins. God is gracious. Just a side note on election. If you have any questions, I'd love to talk afterwards. Election does not mean that we don't have to respond to the gospel. Indeed, what it means is that those who are called are the only ones who want to respond to the gospel. If you are asking yourself, am I called? Has God chosen me? The simple question or simple answer to that question is yes, you have been. How can I say that so confidently? Because someone who isn't called wouldn't ask that question. They wouldn't care at all. Just like Esau in this passage. And as someone who is called, we are called to respond in faith. We're called to respond to the goodness of God. This passage testifies to the, the goodness of God in offering salvation. And third and finally, it is a text that reminds us of the importance of having a tunnel-like gaze on the future. To not think of the temporary. 
the pleasures and the pitfalls of this life as distractions from the future. That we should have a laser-like focus on the end, which is our inheritance. You may ask, what is our inheritance? Paul worships God over our inheritance in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What is our inheritance? Sonship. To be God's sons. To be God's daughters. To live as children of the king. To inherit the kingdom of God. And I plead with you to not trade that away for the temporary pleasures of today. Don't trade it away like Esau. And so as we leave this morning, I want to give you a challenge. What is your red stew? What is your red stew? What is it that is distracting you from your inheritance? For some of us, it may be sports. For others of us, it might be our children. For others, it might be uh, an elusive identity that we try to, to acquire for our own self. For others, Netflix. It can be a million of other things. House projects, future savings, a new car, extra sleep, laziness, whatever. What is your red stew? And once you have identified that, give it up. Give it up. Don't be like Esau. Don't make choices that will lead to you spending trillions upon trillions upon trillions of years in eternity in regret. Focus on the future. Choose your birthright as God's adopted sons and daughters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that is offered to us. God, we stand amazed that you would offer grace to us who are far from worthy of that. We thank you so much for that grace. Lord, we pray that you would also give us the grace to not only accept and receive you, but also that you would give us the grace to respond in faith, to respond in repentance, and to give up the things that are hindering us from seeking you. Give up the things that are distracting us from our inheritance, which is found only in you. 
Be gracious to us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.